Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody uh, joining us online for the first time. Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Center, it is... Uh, my entire in this Monday night class has been happening here in Los Angeles, the West Side, for the last about 18 years. Every Monday, it's my intention teaching this class to uh, you know, several levels of intention. One is to educate and, and hopefully inspire and teach people about Buddhism, another part is. Um, to facilitate you meeting each other, whether that's here in, in the room and building some community, what we call Sangha through regular attendance, or if you're attending on Zoom, uh, not as easy to meet each other, but we do these breakout groups and you have the chance to, to talk to each other a little bit, even on Zoom. And to, to support people in this process of awakening. Buddhism, the whole teaching in Buddhism is that it's possible to wake up. And uh, with a perspective that says the normal human condition is not being awake, is to be asleep on some level, to be confused or ignorant about the true causes of happiness, the true causes of suffering in our lives. Tonight, I want to talk about one of the, I, I think, and Buddhism thinks, um, primary forms of human suffering, causes of human suffering. Now, the, the second noble truth is that it is craving and clinging and aversion that are the cause of all of our human suffering, some level of attachment, some level of craving, or the flip side, which is resistance to what's happening. And the topic tonight, last week, I think we, I think it was last week, we talked about death and the reality of impermanence and death and the suffering that we experience around death. And tonight I want to talk about sex and sexuality and intimacy and love and all of the joy and all of the sorrow that we create around our sexuality. Um, and that, again, that it's normal to create around sex and sexuality. And um, that Buddhism offers some radical uh, transformative perspectives of how to engage with intimacy and sexuality and love and um, with less suffering, perhaps uh, not so much suffering at all, ideally. Now, it's, I think it's always, a, for me, it's tricky, it's a little embarrassing to talk about sex everybody gets a little like oof um it's also a little bit tricky to talk about sex from a uh 
Buddhist perspective where there's some teachings and we'll talk about them tonight, but also the model uh, in the monastic lineage and the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama was somebody who took a vow of celibacy and maintained that vow of just not being sexual for most of his life. And so then it's not the best model for those of us who are saying like, but I want to have sex. I want to be intimate. I want to be in romantic, loving relationships. And then we have this teacher who's like, yeah, you know, not, not the best idea. <laughs> Celibacy, maybe a better choice. If you really want to not suffer at all, maybe easier to be celibate and not suffer at all than to be intimate and not suffer at all. So we're going to talk about all that tonight. So I have a couple questions for you before we meditate and before I share some of my perspectives on human sexuality. Um, and of course, it's such a, I, you know, I'm happy to talk about, often people say to me, you're the only Dharma teacher I know that really talks about sex people that study with lots of different Dharma teachers. And for a, a lot of different reasons, Dharma teachers often avoid it. Don't talk about it. Don't open the, the can of worms. But it's so central to our human experience. How can we talk about an embodied, mindful life without talking about our sexuality? So I regularly try to bring it in. But then also as a you know, in the political climate and the uh, as a cisgendered white male, also challenging, you know, to talk about it without um, projecting all of my, you know, privileged male conditioning onto the, you know, and then also the Buddha's privileged male perspective onto the um, topic. So I probably won't do it right. One of the things that I'm 100% willing to do as a person and as a Dharma teacher is be messy. And I'm not going to, I think one of the reasons why a lot of Dharma teachers don't talk about it is because you're going to fuck it up. So it's safer to avoid the topic. But I'm not so interested in being safe. I'm interested in being honest and transparent and, and messy and, and authentic in the conversation. It's useful. It's central to our human experience. And I probably won't do it in a way that will satisfy all listeners. And so I'll ask for forgiveness in advance <laughs> for the ways that I'm about to offend you. <laughs> I'll ask a couple of questions for your reflection, just to think about this for a moment. First, um, I mean, you're probably already I've introduced the topic, so you're already thinking about it. What do you think about sex? What, what is your mind? You know, check out your mind. What's your mind? Pretty excited about it? <laughs> sex is pretty cool. I like it. A lot of us have a lot of wounds around sex. <laughs> Traumatized experiences from our early life, objectification. Uh, violence. So it's not just joy for a, a huge part of the population. There's also all of this wounding that has been experienced around it. So sometimes you say, what do you think about saying? I think it's painful. I think it's scary for some people. 
what's your what's your favorite part of of your sexual your sexuality your sexual being what's your favorite part about being uh, in this human form that has uh, sensual sexual intimate loving experience what's the joy for you just reflecting like what's the best part of being a sexual being now even saying that there might be people listening tonight or later who don't identify as sexual beings so think like i'm asexual that's a thing that you just think i just i just i don't identify as being a sound asexual not not on my radar it's a very small part of the population, but there's a part of the population that, so I'm, I'm coming with this assumption that most of us can tap into like, oh yeah, there's some real joy around sex when it's the right kind at the right time with the right person, with the right, being a sexual being, there's this aspect of it that's joyous, that's beautiful, that's, what's the good part for you? first part of the question. And then the second part, what's the suffering? What's the first noble truth around sexuality for you? The dukkha, the, for the, the grief of impermanence in sexual relation, intimate and loving relationships, or the unwanted attention that you've experienced, or the rejection that you, what's the hard part? So reflecting on this, and as I said before, one of the uh, my motivations for teaching every week is so that you meet each other, not just listening to me. So that you listen to each other and meet some other meditators. Um, so I'd like to ask you to get into some small groups, two, two to four people, three, you know, three or four, um, and discuss sexuality with these prompts. Uh, what is, you know, what's some joyous experience for you? What do you like about? being a sexual being and what's difficult about it? Where's there some suffering around sexuality for you? So go ahead in the room, find some people at home. I'm gonna open the breakout rooms, encourage you to join one and talk about sex. We'll have a period of sitting meditation and don't think about sex. <laughs> Might be interesting to see how often your mind uh, and those of you who meditate regularly and have more kind of awareness of your, your mind's patterns and the, the mind's tendency to plan and that second noble truth of craving for pleasure being a, a natural mind habit how often does it go to sex love intimacy and some sort of future source of happiness how often does your mind do that becoming more aware of that completely impersonal tendency i noticed at some point in my late 40s i did so many meditation retreats in my 20s and 30s and 40s and I continue to do them in my 50s 
but um, especially in my 20s and 30s, I, so much of my mind would go towards sex when I was, especially in silent meditation and there for days or weeks or and all these sexual thoughts and fantasies and the mind just, you know, craving and planning and hoping. And, and then I noticed at some point in my um, 40s that uh, my mind started thinking more about money than sex. And I was like, oh, something has happened here. <laughs> There's a shift. There's a shift. So I'll give some basic mindfulness instructions, but allow your body to be upright and relaxed. Releasing any tension that you can so that the posture is not tight, not rigid, but a relaxed, upright, balanced posture on the chair, the cushion. Some say take a posture that feels noble, like your nobility. Establishing an inner attitude of friendliness, the intention to be kind, patient, forgiving, accepting of our own mind's tendencies, of our body's sensations, our emotions. From this perspective, meditation isn't about making something happen as much as it is seeing what is happening in the body, in the heart, in the mind. Non-judgmental, present-time, kind awareness. And it's traditional to begin by establishing awareness of the sensations of the breath, Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. This can help us disengage from being so identified with our planning mind. Come to the body, first foundation. But ultimately, mindfulness does include everything, no such thing as a distraction. Whatever the mind is up to, whatever emotions or sensations or sounds are here, it's all part of our practice. It's an opportunity to meet our experience with acceptance and kindness, to understand this human condition of craving and aversion self-centeredness. 
to wake up to what is, what's happening right now.
more important to be kind and accepting of what's happening than to be concentrated. Worry about quieting your mind. We keep coming back to the present, the body, breathing. Aware, these are just thoughts about the future or past. Investigating the feeling tone of your experience, whether it's a thought or a sensation, an emotion or a sound. What's your perception? Pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? This is where we create our happiness or unhappiness, our clinging to the pleasant, craving for the pleasant. Annoyance, aversion by the unpleasant. Mindfulness of what's happening in this moment and how it feels. As we incline our mind and heart towards more compassion for anything that's unpleasant. The unpleasant thoughts, the unpleasant sensations, try to soften, to accept them, to tolerate them. Inclining the heart, the mind towards letting go of anything that we're clinging to, our past, our present, our future. In this moment, try to soften, release, let go of needing anything to be different than it is just for this moment.
for the last few minutes, sense into this body, into your experience, reflecting on sensuality, sexuality, mindful of this body as a sexual being, this nervous system, this natural drive to connect Two more questions for you to reflect on. Where did you learn about sex? Remember being a kid and not being a sexual being, but then at some point started to learn that you yourself were a sexual being. I mean, for people that were abused or molested in some ways, there was an, uh, two early inappropriate experiences. Um, that wasn't really learning about sex, but Where did you learn about it? What did, what did your parents teach you about sex? Just reflecting on this, like, 
What did my parents teach me? And also those of us who grew up with parents that didn't talk about sex, that's a teaching too. Absolutely, avoiding the topic is teaching us something. Reflecting on like, what did we see about our parents' sexuality? Did we see them as so, right? Like, oh, gross, I heard my parents having sex. Or I never heard my parents having sex. I don't even think they had sex. You know, what was your... Learning about it. How many of us learned about sex from television, from movies, from pornography? Magazines, films, pictures, erotica, or schoolyard mythology. <laughs> I think it's very important actually for us to part of what mindfulness is doing is what do I think and feel and what you know what's happening now as an adult person but then there is some investigation of uh, inquiry of why why do I have these views about sex sensuality love where did I learn that and then there's always the question of um, what is nature uh, natural human condition what's just this experience of being human and what is conditioned what was learned in our environments craving is not taught it is natural <laughs> every all of us are born with that survival instinct you could call it procreative imperative uh, maybe not the right for all of us but craving natural you nobody taught you that but somebody taught us how to relate to it uh and growing up in judeo-christian culture shame judgment judeo-christian islamic all of the theistic religions that put a judgment on sexuality not a normalizing beautiful part of human uh, experience but sin what a fucked up situation to grow up in a world that says part of your natural being is wrong and whether you had parents that forced that view on you or just growing up in a culture that has that view around sexuality not that it's a beautiful natural thing but that it's somehow unspiritual unhealthy unwise to desire sex or especially to you know, have it i mean not even talking about having sex just to want it is a sin <laughs> and then all of the you know anti-woman conditioning of Christianity of his Eve, this patriarchal sexism of Christianity that blames the female for sexual desire. And, you know, you're all wise enough to be like, that's complete bullshit, but it's still in there. It's still conditioned into our whole culture. 
maybe some of you come from different cultures, but one way or another. So what'd you learn from your parents? And then reflecting for a moment, what are you learning from Buddhism about sex? I said it earlier, what's it, what's it like to be involved in a path of enlightenment and awakening by a teacher who was celibate? How, you know, does that bring up some questions for you? <laughs> I'm like, I want to be a Buddha, but I also want to get laid. How come the Buddha gave up sex? Do I have to give up sex? Maybe it's one of the reasons why in Buddhist communities, we don't talk about it a lot because it's challenging to say like, uh, we're choosing to do something different than the founder, that different than the Buddha. I have more questions than I do answers, obviously. I don't have a lot of answers, but I'll share some of my experience and some teachings that I'm aware of. I heard, I don't know what sutta, what, what scripture this is in, but I heard that there's a place where the Buddha says something like, if there was another um, experience in, in our human experience, uh, as powerful as the human craving for sex and love and intimacy. And um, if there was another force within us as strong as our sexual force, when I say sexual, I mean love also, not just sex, love, intimacy, romance, companionship that's intimate and sexual in nature, not just fucking sexuality on the broader scale. So if there was another uh, force as powerful as sex and lust and that enlightenment would not be possible. You think that's true? Now I know when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, I think hatred is, when I look at the world, I see uh, more hatred than I do lust. But apparently, because <laughs> the hatred is so glaring and war and oppression, and you know, like it's so uh, disturbing when you see hatred and you see it all the time. And you, when you, you know, like read history, <laughs> you know, it's like, and then they kill these people and then we kill those people and then they kill them back. And then it's like hatred, murder, war, violence, colonialization, just all of this disturbing, ignorant world history, confusion. But there are people who live their whole lives and don't experience any violence or hatred. There are some. 
but there's nobody that lives their whole lives and doesn't suffer some about lust and love and grief about the impermanent nature of sexual relationships and intimacy. And it affects everyone in a way that hatred doesn't affect everyone. There's nobody on, on, on the planet that gets through life without suffering some about sexuality. Does that seem, I don't know, anybody here tonight not have any suffering ever about sex? I mean, we won't believe you anyways, but you could say it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's, he's saying like, this is universal. We, all of us are going to have some challenges, struggles, difficulties around our sexuality. Not everyone's going to experience violence or hatred or oppression, even though it looks like that is uh, even more powerful. When you look at your own experience, we can do this. Uh, do you suffer more from craving for pleasure and clinging to pleasure or aversion to pain? Just thing, you know, even when you're meditating, does your mind go more to resentment or towards craving, planning, or even worrying? When you worry, are you worrying about something unpleasant happen or, or something pleasant not happening? And this is part of what we're doing in mindfulness is trying to become more intimate about with the nature of our mind and the, the tendency to, to craving and aversion and what is this second foundation of mindfulness, the, you know, not only what's happening, but is it pleasant or unpleasant? What's our relationship to pleasure and to pain? And sex seems to be uh, kind of the height of human pleasure. And one of the most pleasant experiences that we can have you know, free from heroin. <laughs> Free, free from intoxicants or, you know, there's some, some drugs that many would say way better than sex, <laughs> but free from altered states in a kind of natural state, sex seems to be the most naturally pleasant. And we're wired that way for procreation of the species for sex to be so pleasant and orgasm to be so pleasant and not personal, not conditioned, nature. Again, it's hard to talk about because I know sometimes I've talked about this and people come up and say, not my experience. So can't talk to, it's not everyone's experience. You might have a different experience. I got involved in Buddhism quite young and got serious about it started doing a lot of meditate a lot of meditation retreats in my late teens and early 20s and the second um teacher that i met was a celibate buddhist monk ajahn amaro and i can remember and then you know i'd, I'd read the, the story of the buddha's life and knowing that he was somebody that 
had chosen a life of celibacy and then meeting this young Westerner in robes. And I, I, at that time I had this feeling of like, I want to get enlightened. Like if it's possible, I want to do it. I'm so, I've suffered so much in my early life with addiction and craving and ignorance. And I want to take this Buddhist thing as far as it can go. Can I get enlightened? And I can remember meeting, you know, getting introduced to the monks. And there was a nun, Sister Sandara, was on that same retreat that I was attending. And I was probably 20 years old, maybe 21. And uh, that, that conditioning of maybe celibacy is a better idea. If we, you know, to take this thing all the way. That's what they're, that's what these monastics are doing, the nuns and the monks. It's what the Buddha did. And it gave me some kind of judgment around my own sexuality of like, I'm not, I guess I'm not as serious as they are. But, you know, but also inspired me. And so uh, around that same time, I had this other recovery based spiritual teacher who was um, encouraging celibacy. So in my early 20s, I spent two years from 21 to 23, completely celibate, not as a monk, but just as a householder. And I gave up masturbation and I gave up all dating and all sexuality, no pornography, nothing, just complete abstinence celibacy. And it's sort of pseudo monasticism and a kind of not having the support of a community of celibates, just you know, being the only celibate person I knew. <laughs> with all of the craving of that young adult uh, experience and saying like, I'm just gonna sit with it. I'm just gonna observe the arising and passing of desire and, um, and the nocturnal emissions, the wet dreams that uh, it was my experience of celibacy, like every week or couple weeks of having that sort of wet dream where the body even all by itself would just be like, nope, we're coming. <laughs> with or without your participation it's just happening and i learned so much about um how impersonal that sexual desire is and how uh, optional it is whether or not to satisfy it you know first half of my life i was horny I masturbated or tried to be in a relationship or satisfied sexual and then kind of coming to that place of like i'm just gonna take a break from that the monks are on to something i'm gonna see what is it like to not engage in sexual behavior and it wasn't out of like i know um friends and people in our community that are in recovery from sex addiction that wasn't my motivation i was just like let's let's just take a break Let's see what it's like to not be sexual. And that conditioning of, I think it's more spiritual to not be sexual than it is to be sexual. And I know some of that might be the Judeo-Christian, some of that's the Buddhist conditioning. Anyways, I found myself in my mid-20s um, re-engaging in relationship and I found myself at these monasteries in Thailand at some point and thinking about ordaining as a monk. And my own feeling was a life of celibacy. I just want to say, like, I 
think that celibacy is a viable option. Nobody has to have sex ever. It's totally optional. And I think it can be a very healthy choice. And I think it's important for us to, you may or may not agree with me. But from that perspective, just to consider that perspective, that we're voluntarily participating in our sexual activity rather than it's something that we have to do. Because there, I feel like there's, it's in, the, in the world, it kind of feels like you have to love and date and be in sexual relationships. And the truth is you don't have to. You can choose to do that or not to do that. And that when we do choose, when we do suffer in relationships, it's so much more powerful to take responsibility and say, I'm choosing this shit. Not I'm a victim or, you know, I'm choosing, you know, when it's consensual and all of that, you know, then you're not a victim. I'm choosing this. This is my choice. I could absolutely abstain. I could absolutely refrain and have a, a, a life of joy and, and an awakened life free from sexuality. Now, the reason I say that is because I, I believe it, but I found myself in my kind of mid-20s feeling like I could do the, the life of celibacy. But I think I would be missing part of my healing. What was my sense? I felt like I had some um karma some some healing to do in this lifetime that was going to include being uh, a long-term relationship intimacy learning to be intimate and loving and connected and i felt like that's not so easy for me i'm not i'm not so good at that i want to learn how to do that <coughs> becoming a parent it felt like that's going to be part of my uh spiritual practice to parent to have that sort of like human beings dependent on me and me connected in a hopefully healthy way with raising children. <coughs> so pretty early on, you know, like within that kind of first 10 years of my practice, I decided that I need, I wanted sexuality to be part of my spiritual practice, not, not avoidance of it, not celibacy. But I didn't really have very good models. And I liked the monks way better than the Western householder teachers. They're just more inspiring and you know, to me. But then I was like, okay, well, I gotta learn. Like, who do I learn about how to be um, you know, a husband and a father, a partner and a how do I, uh, so I started to look at the Western teachers, but then the more that I, uh, the householder teachers, and the more that I got to know them, the more kind of disillusioning it was, where um, some of them were quite uptight about sexuality, not talking about it in their Dharma talks, quite traditional in their views. And as the more I was like, you know, what about kinky sex? Like, what, what about, you know, uh, they were like, no, that's not spiritual. <laughs> And, you know, kind of a narrow, with some of them, with some of the teachers, like kind of a narrow view, uh, in my, my opinion, a narrow view. Um, one of my, you know, kind of favorite teachers, I found out that he was in a sexless marriage. And I was like, I, that's not the kind of model that I want. And that he was seeing prostitutes on the side. I was like, that's not the kind of, I, I want to I learn about 
healthy, intimate, loving relationships. And so it's been, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, an ongoing thing for me to, to look at in my own practice and in the, my mentors and teachers in the world. Um, and I, you know, I end up keep, I keep coming back to the monks and uh, it's hard to learn about sex from people that don't have sex. <laughs> I was saying this earlier to somebody who was like, yeah, the, the Ajahn Sumedho has some really great perspectives on sex. I was like, the dude's been celibate for like 55 years. <laughs> But he had sex, you know, 55 years ago, so he remembers. <laughs> the traditional Buddhist teachings are pretty open and liberal, but don't give us a lot of instructions about how to work with. You know, there's uh, in the Eightfold Path, part of uh, right action is avoid sexual misconduct. And the traditional uh, teaching about avoiding sexual misconduct is just about adult consensual relationships. You know, just don't don't lie and cheat and cause harm intentionally with your sexuality. But it's pretty liberal. It's open. It's um, you know, it's it's nothing. There's there's not even anything about um, you know sexuality needing to be. Um, monogamous or it's pretty it's pretty open buddhist the way that i hear buddhists teachings around sexuality pretty open there are forms of buddhism that become homophobic and become very heterocentral centric and but the original teachings i feel like are just the buddha saying like don't lie and don't create negative karma for yourself don't sleep with people you shouldn't be sleeping with you know who you know you know when it's appropriate when it's not So again, it gives us this broad open, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that Buddhism doesn't give us that sort of sin judgment around sexuality. It says, you know, go for it. <laughs> Try not to cling. Now, this is the central dilemma around sex and love and this teaching of non-attachment. The core solution to not suffering is to not get attached. Have you had any luck doing that in your intimate relationships? Has your Dharma practice, again, kind of rhetorical questions, but reflections, has your Dharma practice help you uh, be less attached, suffer less, maybe not total non-attachment? Now, I've done this a lot. Some of you have seen it. Our tendency, our un, unwise tendency is to cling, right? Where we, we get attached to our romantic partners, our sex partners, our objects of our sexual desire. There's the clinging, which is like this. And the problem with this is that we're all impermanent beings constantly changing. And so when we cling like this, you're not allowing someone to be their organic, clinging moody self <laughs> you need them to be a certain way uh, in order you know and you're it's stifling it's controlling clinging is controlling now 
sometimes we suffer so much from the clinging, you know, whether we're the clinger or the clung to, <laughs> sometimes we're both clinging to each other in the appropriate way and it just feels like a warm hug. It's beautiful until somebody has a different mood. And then you're like, wait, you're not as attached as I am in this moment, I don't like that. Or I'm more attached than you are in this moment. I, doesn't feel very good, does it? Rarely are we going to be on the same level of clinging to each other all of the time. There's that moment. Of, so because attachment creates suffering, there's this tendency to detach and that aversive, like, well, that hurt, so I'm going to avoid it. Resentment. The, don't try to control me or, or, you know, don't abandon me, whatever it is for us and this detachment, and then the coming back, the, the ultimate, in my understanding and, and some experience with this, when it's best is when we're connected. Embracing, touching, connected, intimate, loving, but allowing each other to be a changing impermanent process of moods and attitudes and views and opinions, and not saying, I need you to be a certain way all of the time. I need you to be permanent rather than this connection. So Buddhist householder love sexuality goal for us. And you've heard this. I give it in the meditation instructions all the time. Non-attached appreciation. Non-attached. Non-attachment is connection. It's not detachment. Non-attachment in love and sex and is I'm totally here, present, as connected as I can be in this moment, and I'm not trying to control you. I don't need you to be different than you are. You get to be just your changing process, and I get to be my changing process. And hopefully we'll come together and enjoy that dance of love and sex and connection. And sometimes we'll get super attached to each other, <laughs> and we'll suffer a little bit about it, and then we might... Ah! and then come back together and this dance of clinging, detachment, connection. And the goal is more connection, less clinging. More connection, less clinging. My sense is that all, uh, that sexuality is beautiful and can be beautiful and that it's a place where we will all experience some suffering and that there's no uh, it's, it's quite interesting also this reflection it's not so much a teaching but it's just an encouragement like you know what do we like about sexuality what are the um kinky things like do you have any kinks not that you have to tell us but just reflecting on just reflecting on oh yeah there's some non-traditional sexual uh you know we're super into stockings, whatever it is, like things that turn us on and, and reflecting on like, well, what, why does that turn me on? Really, you know, I'm super into feet. What's that about? I'm super into hair or I don't know, whatever it is for you or, um, you know, how uh, intense we like it or how gentle we need sexuality to be or how you know, the, the kind of BDSM world of sexuality where pain is experienced as, as pleasant. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, do we like to be dominated? Do we like to be submissive? 
Do we need it to be very kind of mutual? All of the, looking at all of that, bringing our mindfulness, our awareness, and our investigation to every aspect of it. I, I hope that Buddhism feels like this to you. The Eightfold Path is about our whole life. And a little half-assed mention of avoid sexual misconduct, but I think we can turn that into turn your sexuality into a central part of your mindful investigation of your being. When you're horny, be mindful. Horniness feels like this. When you're sexual, bring full mindfulness into the sensations of sexuality. And the impermanent nature of the uh, climax or the connection or whatever it is. You know, sometimes impermanent, we talk a lot about impermanence. And um, seems like usually with pleasant experiences, we kind of grieve that they're impermanent. Like I wish that pleasure would last longer. But what if it la what if pleasure lasts too long? Like what if you had an orgasm that wouldn't stop? Aren't you kind of grateful that orgasms are impermanent? <laughs> Can you imagine just being in like a, you know, 48 hour orgasm? Like it might drive you fucking insane. Like it, but there's that repetitive craving that comes of like, well, that was a good orgasm. I'd like another one soon. <laughs> But there's, you know, some gratitude of like, I'm glad that it's not permanent. I'm glad that it passes. I couldn't handle, I couldn't go to work in that state of orgasm. I couldn't show up for my kids very skillfully. <laughs> if I was orgasming all day. such a small part for most of us, you know, sex is such a small part of our day or of our week or of our life, but it becomes so all encompassing that that craving and that wanting the connection and that uh, wanting it to be available and wanting to be wanted to be loved to be seen as sexy. So much a part of our human experience. So I'll open it up. We have 10 minutes. So let's, what do you want to talk about sex? What are your questions, comments, experiences of how any questions that you have are just, you know, reflections on how the Dharma and the, the understanding the impermanent nature of things and the trying to be connectedly non-attached, how is it helping? How, how are you finding that you're suffering less, hopefully? Any questions, you can raise your hand. And at home, there's a um, hand raising button down there in the reactions, please. Can you just talk a little bit more about parenthood and your experiences with Dharma and Sutras? Um, you know, I had that uh, thought, like knowing in my 20s, and then I didn't have children until I was, you know, 10 years later in my mid-30s. And... Um, it has been a very central experience of not getting to um, be the center of my own life and uh, making other beings 
you know, for my schedule, for my time, for my energy, more important than me and maybe, you know, some of the other, there, there's a natural sort of like, that's what I want to do, but not all the time. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, no, that's fucking driving to Palisades again to pick up the kids, not what I want to be doing, but it is what I'm doing and I'm being mindful about doing it, you know, like, um, so that service aspect of parenting and that connection, um, but there's also, you know, part of that is clinging. I had a friend, woman studying, doing a lot of retreats and she had a, a monk teacher, Burmese monk teacher. And she went to him at one point and said, I'm, um, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a kid. And the teacher said, oh, no hope for your enlightenment now. It's a fucked up thing to say. <laughs> But part of that perspective is uh, good luck being non-attached to your kids. And then kind of, you know, but it's that same thing of like, oh, clinging, controlling, you should do what I say because I say it, <laughs> you know, to being, the, you know, the understanding the equanimity of like, these are beings that have their own karma. It's my job to tend and guide and consequences, all of that stuff, part of parenting, but also that they have their own, they get to make their own choices too. And they're not going to always make the choices I want them to make. And they're, you know, uh, what a great practice of equanimity. Their happiness or unhappiness on that level is based on how they're reacting to what's happening, not my wishes for them. So, I mean, I don't know, it feels like a whole different top, topic, but um, I recommend it. I had a friend who, um, after i don't know it's, it's his kid was still young maybe a year or two old and he came to me and he was like you fucking lied to me you said parenting was awesome he's like i think it sucks because he couldn't quite get out of his self-centeredness and desire to do what he wanted when he wanted and that and especially when they're babies and you got to get up in the middle of the night and all of that challenges of of really young children and he's just like i don't enjoy it at all or hardly and i was like i can't you know like that's not my experience like all of those difficulties i still find a tremendous amount of joy in it uh, but that's not true for everyone and not everyone has that um Sometimes maybe it's trauma or wounds or, or whatever, but not, not everybody has that paternal or maternal instinct that <laughs> uh, most people have pretty naturally. Please, Tara, go ahead. Well, I mean, uh, do you think that if we start seeing sexuality as more of a biological phenomenon, seeing like maybe more of I mean, like, if you're just looking at it as, like, it's part of our existence, and we're, like, you you sort of talked about that, like, just we're human and we have bodies, and so whether we're eating food or taking a drug or having sex or being just, like, swimming or being in the world, we have these sensual experiences, and so if we sort of don't just see things in really heteronormative ways i mean maybe that would cause less suffering too i think partly like buddhist meditation and just breaking things down and getting out of i mean i'm very influenced by the media and porn or but even more so probably by advertising images 
you know, Hollywood standards of beauty and all that kind of suffered, but like, um, like even for someone who is super like that, it's really impossible not to be affected by all that, especially like living in schedules. But but aside from that, like just in general, you know, and, and I think partly part of that is like these constructs of beauty have to do with like beauty and you know, as opposed to like death. So if you're like less fearful of death and more open to just sensuality and being in the world and appreciation for the body, it seems like you would, in general, you can suffer less and be like slightly more in your Hundred percent. I mean, that, and that's that is the perspective, which is this is part of what's happening here, and it's the clinging that is natural. It's the craving that is natural that Buddhism is offering us an intervention for, learning about non-attached connection, loving presence, and less suffering about it. Um, but it's it's against the norm. It's against the stream to approach relationships with the intention to not try to cling or control, but to be connectedly non-attached. Pretty radical what we're trying to do. Ryan, did you still have a? Okay, okay, Dove, go ahead. <clears throat> I forgot how to phrase it. Um, is there a Buddhist approach to the damage or the the stuff that our parents instill in us when it comes to relations? Like, you know what I mean? Like the, the childhood wounds you then try to get your partner to fix kind of thing. Could you hear that at home, the question? Yeah. Um, my sense, the initial thought is the more we see that we are not our personalities or our trauma, so it's, it's a nata. I think that the, it's, it's the combination of loving kindness, you know, developing our own uh, universal love for ourselves and each other, the forgiveness of our parents for their, the ways that they passed on their neuroses to us, and we embody that. So it's the heart practices, loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness. But then ultimately, it seemed like, oh, yeah, like, you know, my ego structure and my personality tendency, you know, is anxious or is uh, avoidant or, you know, those sort of attachment theory things, which have, there's some truth to them. And you see that that's true about this personality that is here in this, but it's not self. So it's more of that kind of ultimate seeing it's not self. And then that there's, then it's renunciation probably around like, oh, I'm so attracted to emotionally abusive people or unavailable people or, you know, mom or dad or <laughs> and you know the more we identify that then saying like okay even though i'm totally drawn to that i have to have some disciplined renunciation of not engaging when it's become when that becomes clear oh that's i'm doing that again oh i'm in that you know disengaging but i think it's the i don't know if this fits but that was my initial thought was that it's more that unpacking of the self and seeing like yep there's all of those tendencies in in my personality and in my um relational tendencies but it's not who i am now the last pe part of the way you ask the question 
was of like looking for that healing in relationships. Part of my view, and maybe this is more of a psychological view than a Dharma view, is that actually relationships are healing and um, that we enter into relationships uh, with somebody who's willing to do that work with us that we're both going to heal. And that that's part of, you know, we're kind of uh, almost reparenting each other in some ways of like, I'm going to show up as unconditionally as I can and as loving as I can. And so are you. And that's going to heal both of our wounds in some ways. Relationships have a potential for a deep healing. Now, that only is good if we're both signing up for it. If you're going in and, you know, saying like, hey, heal me. <laughs> they're like, I'm not game at all. <laughs> um, but that perspective, I was listening to a relationship thing. I think it might have been Harville Hendricks or one of those relational psychologist people. And they said they said something like, you know, this idea that a lot of us have in Western psychological circles that you have to heal yourself first before you're available for a, uh, a relationship is total bullshit. That actually that relational healing that we need to, can only happen in relationships. It can't happen by itself outside of intimacy because it's the intimacy that brings it up and gives us the opportunity to heal it. And that makes it, for, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not going to plant my flag in that, but it makes sense to me. It's been my experience. A lot of the healing that I ex have experienced around intimacy has been in intimate relationships, not while I was celibate or while I was, you know, just dating and not being really committed in a, a, a deeper intimacy. So I think that relationship, uh, my parents wrote a, a book about, um, it's called Embracing the Beloved Relationship as the Spiritual Path. And uh, I tend to lean towards that and it makes more sense to me. Okay, it's nine o'clock. We made it. We all had sex. <laughs> Couple of announcements. Uh, Memorial Day retreat coming up one month away or so, two months away, April, May, no, month and a month and a half away, a little over a month away, uh, end of May. There is still room. If you're going to come, please register soon so that we get our final numbers and assign the rooms and all of that. Three-day retreat. You can come to um, for as little as $300 as a partial scholarship. So, um, you know, consider coming. If you have more money, pay the full registration fee. But if you can't afford the full registration fee, take the partial scholarship, come for $300 for the three-day retreat, annual Memorial Day silent meditation retreat. Um, and then the, the Thailand trip, there's, people are starting to register. If you're thinking of coming to Thailand with me in November for this 10-day um, pilgrimage where we're going to do some retreat and we're going to go see some monks and to see some uh, Buddhist ruins and um, register soon, get your tickets. I think it's going to fill up probably within the next month or two. And then you won't have, so don't put it off and be like, well, maybe I'll register in September. You won't have the opportunity to come if you wait. 
So if you're planning it, plan it, buy your tickets, register, and uh, probably going to close registration for that at, at some point. Classes done by donation, all of Against the Streams uh, activities pretty much are are done, you know, supported by the generosity. We're a nonprofit organization. We're a, a church, actually. We're a religious and nonprofit organization that is uh, entirely supported by your generosity. Uh, so be as generous as you can for a drop-in class. If you can give twenty or twenty-five dollars, please do. If you can and want to become a monthly supporter, so you can just uh, support the center being here. Uh, please consider giving a monthly $25 or $50 or $100 a month to support the, the organization. Am I forgetting anything, Sebastian? All right, got it. Good to see everybody. And um, believe that there is merit in practicing meditation and discussing dharma and may this merit be offered outward in all directions shared with all beings may each one of us find more freedom and together create a positive change on this planet see you next week Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.